0: How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. The flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of God abides forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary to make sure you're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, ready to study the Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we have to study your word this evening. We pray that you would help us to understand all that is involved in our salvation, and that as we contemplate and meditate on these doctrines, that we might have a greater appreciation for the riches of your grace. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. This is our third lesson in salvation. Two weeks ago, we started a series on uh, salvation to go through in a little more detail everything that God has done for us in the process of saving us. I think it's too often that people think rather lightly or superficially about salvation. We think that it's simply a matter of the fact that at one point we're going to go to uh, the lake of fire, and the next point we're going to get saved. We're going to spend eternity in heaven. We do not appreciate all that is necessary to be accomplished in order for God to save a sinful creature. Because we do not have an accurate or profound enough understanding, I think, is one reason why people get the notion that they can do something to lose their salvation. Once you realize all that happens at salvation, all that God has done in order to supply salvation we begin to realize that salvation is not the kind of thing that can be reversed once it happens. So that is one reason to take time to investigate in more detail all that the Scripture says about salvation. We started off talking the first night about what just what salvation is. We saw that salvation in the Scripture is spoken of in three senses. The word sozo has to do with deliverance. And that it is spoken of in the past tense, we are saved when we trust Christ as our Savior. We are being saved as we grow and advance in the spiritual life. And in another sense, Paul speaks in Romans 5 about those who have been justified past tense, that is, they, they're saved at the by trust faith alone in Christ alone. They have been justified and they will be saved, future tense. So salvation is used in three tenses to speak of the fact that at the cross, when we put our faith alone in Christ alone, we're saved from the penalty of sin. During the Christian life, we are saved from the power of sin. And at phase three, when we're absent from the body and face to face with the Lord, we will be saved from the presence of sin. The second question we answered was, why does God save us? And that is grounded in Genesis 1, and 27. And an understanding that man is unique among all the creatures and that man is created in the image and likeness of God. No other creature, not even the angels, are said to have been created in the image and likeness of God. And that says something special about man. Not only does it have to do with his internal makeup, as we have studied, that it focuses on the elements of the soul His self consciousness. I am. He recognizes that he is a self. That he is an identity, an independent individual. He has consciousness of his self. When you look in the mirror, you know that you're looking at yourself. Hopefully, when an animal looks in the mirror, they do not know that that is themselves that they are looking at. Uh, There is reasoning power, we think, man thinks, he has the ability to put things together, to utilize logic, to move from the concrete to the abstract. He has moral reasoning, he has a conscience, he knows what he ought to do. And fourth, he has volition, self-determination, he has a will. So he has a self-consciousness, he has a mentality, has a conscience and a volition. This makes up part of that image, but not all of the image. One of the reasons I make that point is because somebody I know is out there thinking, well, what about the angels? Angels will look in a mirror, and they'll know who they are. They have self-consciousness. They have reasoning powers probably far beyond man. They have moral reasoning ability. They have a conscience, and, and they have volition. So why isn't an angel in the image of God? That is because there's another dimension that is added to the soul, and that is the human spirit. The Bible speaks of the the human being as being, being comprised of three parts, three elements. He has a physical body. He has a soul made up of the self-conscious mentality, conscience, and volition. And then the third element is an immaterial human spirit. ...which is interlinked and interconnected at the most intimate level with that soul. That enables the soul, the elements of the soul, to have a relationship with God. And together, as these two elements function, man is enabled to pull off his role as a representative of God. See, that's the other dimension to being an image of God... Not just who man is, but what he was to do. He was to be God's representative over the creation. That sort of role was never assigned to any of the angels, not even to to Lucifer before he fell. So man's internal immaterial makeup was specifically designed in order for man to fulfill this function. Furthermore, I think that we can extrapolate from that to say that the human body was formed to house this particular soul, and the human body plays a part in this image as that which provides the means for the soul and the spirit to manifest itself. I think we can argue, I think it can be argued and established on the basis of Scripture that in Luke chapter 16 when the, we have the story of Lazarus and the rich man, Lazarus died, was a beggar. But a believer, Old Testament saint category, died, and he goes to what was called Abraham's bosom in the Old Testament. For those of you unfamiliar with that story, what we learn there is that up until the cross, there was a place where the dead went called, one general term in the Old Testament was Sheol. Both believers and unbelievers went to Sheol. Sheol was divided into two compartments. One was called Abraham's bosom, and the other was called Torments. Torments was the location of the, where the unbeliever went, Abraham's bosom where the believer went, and then there was some sort of gulf in between the two. But it was possible for those in Abraham's bosom to see those in torments and vice versa. At the cross, after the cross, when Jesus ascended to heaven, all Old Testament saints were taken to heaven. So paradise is now located in heaven. But in the Old Testament, it is in this compartment of Sheol because Christ has not yet opened the door. He has not yet paved the way by his death on the cross. Now, in that story, the most instructive element of that story is that it is treated as a real episode. This isn't a parable. Some people try to make it a parable, but one thing that characterizes parables is the individuals are not named. If you think about the parables of the... uh, of the prodigal son, parable of the rich landowner. Parables, uh, the individuals do not have names. They're not individuals. A parable is just a loose story designed to communicate a universal truth. Whereas in this story, Abraham is specifically named and treated as a real space-time individual. An individual who uh, had trusted in Christ as a Savior. Now, when the rich man is in torments and sees uh, sees Lazarus, he begs Abraham to allow Lazarus to be resurrected, to go back to the earth, to tell the rich man's brothers about salvation so that they'll be saved and not endure the suffering, the pain, the fiery torments that he is suffering. The fact that he is suffering fiery torments indicates that there is some level of physical pain, some kind of physical body. When he expresses his Wish to Abraham, he says, would you please dip, allow Lazarus to dip his finger into the water and touch my tongue so that my pain can be relieved. In other words, Abraham has a finger. The rich man has a tongue, and he's experiencing physical pain. This indicates that there's some sort of interim body. Remember, Old Testament saints do not receive their resurrection bodies. Until the end of the millennial king, uh, uh, until the um, uh, end of the tribulation, and they finalize the first resurrection. That tells us there's some sort of interim body. God designed the soul to function with a body. He did not design the soul to function without a body. So the body is not the core element of the image, but the body is necessary for the image to express itself in terms of its function as God's representative over creation. And one of the things that was developed a, a tremendous amount in medieval philosophy is the question about the connection between the soul and the body, and that there's a necessary connection between the soul and the body. And this is something that uh modern theologians have spent very little time investigating or studying. What we learn from scripture is that when Adam sinned, he died spiritually. He lost that human spirit so that now he is a body and a soul. He has two parts, what we call the dichotomy. At regeneration, when we are born again, that which is given birth is the human spirit. That's created and assigned at that particular time, and man once again has the potential of reflecting God to creation. That's why the believer is to be restored and renewing his mind in the image of Christ. So you see this theme of being in the image of God, having that marred or distorted by the fall, and then restored through regeneration and developed in sanctification. So why does God save man? And he saves man, provides salvation for man, because man is created in his image and in his likeness. Now, two passages indicate the threefold or trichotomous view of man. First Thessalonians 5.23 states that, May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete. And the grammar there indicates that these three terms are for distinct elements of man. Hebrews 4.12 tells us the Word of God can pierce as far as the division of soul and spirit. So even though in many cases the soul and spirit function in a way that they can be viewed as almost being one, they can be distinguished and they do have distinct functions. Now, just so I don't leave some of you uh, in the lurch by glossing over something. One thing you must realize is that we use two terms in discussing this. One is the term trichotomy, and the other is dichotomy. This has to do with the fact that man is composed in either three parts or two parts. But historically, historically in, in church history, the term trichotomy refers to those theologians who believe that man is composed of three parts or three elements, even if one of them is dead and no longer there, like even if the human spirit is gone, if you still believe man is ultimately comprised of these three elements, you're called a trichotomist. That is the tr- standard position in any theology. The dichotomist position states that man is comprised of a material body and an immaterial essence. These are the two parts. In, in traditional dichotomy, it doesn't break it down in just body and soul. Traditional dichotomy breaks it down in just the material and the immaterial. One of the problems with that position is that it renders the term spiritual death or our human spirit meaningless it just becomes a figure of speech because all the various terms that you find in the scriptures such as heart mind uh conscience all of these um all of these terms are simply uh different ways of looking at that immaterial essence uh, i don't believe that position is right because of the verses i just cited i don't think you can get around the fact that twice the Scripture makes that point, and for the Scripture to make anything true, it only has to state it one time. So the answer to the question, why does God save man, is because man is created in God's image. That involved his immaterial essence, his soul, the makeup of the soul, and its function as God's representative of God over the creation. And so God is in the process of saving people. He restores the image, and then it is, it is fully rebuilt are renewed through the process of sanctification so that man can finally take that position in the future millennial kingdom as one who rules and reigns over the earth and fulfills that initial creation mandate mandate to rule over the earth and to subdue the earth. So it is all part of God's overall plan. This is why God provides salvation. Now what is the why is it then the third question is why do we need to be saved? And this is goes to the whole question of sin and the sin barrier. When God initially created man, man was created in his image and man possessed perfect righteousness. And there was perfect harmony between God and man. Man could have a relationship with God. Man could understand the things of God. Now, Adam was not created omniscient. He didn't know everything about God. He did not come out of the, when he woke up that first morning and looked around, he had to be taught. He had to learn about God. And God began to teach him. God began to teach him about the creation around him. And God told him that this is the light, and I call it day, and this is the night, and that's darkness. This is the land, that's the earth, and that's the water, and that's the seas. And there were a few other things that God named during that first week of, of Genesis. But then God said, now I'm going to bring the animals to you, and now that I've initialized your vocabulary, you, it's your job to start categorizing, classifying all of the animals. So man is in the process of learning from day one. Even in, even in perfect environment, man had to go to school and man had to learn. Now, I know that may be a rugged thing for some of you to learn that. Parents, now you can remind your kids of that. So you, I just gave you leverage you know, for those of you who are sharp enough to, to pick up on that. So even Adam, in perfect environment, had to go to school and had to learn. And I know it's going to shock some of you also, but when we die and we're face-to-face with the Lord, we're not going to be omniscient then either. they are going to be... Millions and billions of things that the Lord knows that we're still not going to know and understand a billion years into eternity because we are still creatures. And so we're going to spend eternity learning more and more about God and learning more and more about his creation. And the creation, of course, by then will be the new heavens and the new earth. So this is an ongoing process, and it has to do with man's developing man's role in the creation. And of course by then we will be over the angels and ruling and reigning the angels. But Adam sent. There was one prohibition in the garden, only one way to sin, and that was to disobey God by eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now there were certain preconditions that set the stage for that in terms of arrogance, in terms of the way uh the woman looked at the at the fruit and began to think, hmm. Maybe I have the right to make this decision. But it wasn't a sin until she actually chopped down on that fruit. So there was no other way that man could sin. And I want you to notice it wasn't a moral sin. Uh, Everybody always gets wrapped around the axle on moral sins. And we get all upset whenever there's any kind of immorality. And we've studied the issue with the immorality in Corinth on Sunday morning. But some of the worst sins in history have not been moral sins. They have been sins related to uh, arrogance, and that's always worse. So when man sinned, this fellowship with God was broken, and man was spiritually dead, and there is a sin barrier that now exists between man and God, and it is that sin barrier that prevents man from having a relationship with God. Now I want you to open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And we're just going to look briefly at a few verses starting in verse 11. Now the application that Paul is making in verses 11 to 22 is an application related to Jew and Gentile being brought together in one body. But I want you to read this a little more perceptively because he talks about a dividing wall here, but the dividing wall, while it seems at first blush to refer to a dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, that's not the dividing wall. Verse 11, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, that is, Jews called Gentiles uncircumcision, that at that time you were without Christ. And at that time he's referring to the Old Testament period and prior to their salvation. At that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. They weren't corporately in Israel. So there was no blessing from God directed to Gentiles unless they were in covenant relationship with God. Being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood. So you who were far off has to do with them Gentiles as unbelievers, and the blood of Christ is a term that refers to the atoning work of Christ on the cross, His substitutionary spiritual death, not the literal blood, because it wasn't His physical death that paid the penalty for sin. We'll get into that a little more as we, uh, next week when we go through the solution. But for those of you who are new, remember Christ paid the penalty for sin, which was spiritual death, not physical death. So His since the penalty for sin was spiritual death, the payment Christ paid on the cross would have to be in kind. Therefore, it was spiritual death and not physical death. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the wall of separation. Now, there are two things going on there. He made both one. That is, he's making both Jew and Gentile one new body. But he broke down the middle wall of separation having abolished in his flesh the enmity. Notice, what did he abolish? He abolished the enmity. Now, the enmity didn't exist between Jew and Gentile. They weren't exactly best buds, but that's not where enmity existed. The enmity existed between man and God. But God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were at enmity with God. And That is, the law of commandments contained in ordinance so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God. See, the reconciliation is not between Jew and Gentile. It is reconciliation of Jew and Gentile as unbelievers to God, thereby putting to death the enmity. So the enmity was put to death at the cross, and that enmity and the removal of that barrier is the sin barrier. So the sin barrier is removed at the cross, but it is more than just that simple fact alone. So we have to look at what the elements were that the Scripture describes that com- that comprised this sin barrier. And I'm going to approach this logically. I want to approach this logically in terms of looking at how the components... In the barrier relate to one another. We're going to start off with the principle of sin. There's a principle of sin that is distinct from the consequences of sin. And it is the principle of this sin that we will refer to later as Adam's original sin that is imputed to the human race. There is the problem of sin. Now what is sin? Sin is based on Several there's there's several different Hebrew words and a couple of different Greek words that are used. I'm going to just focus on the primary ones. The first word is kata, C-H-A-T-A, and then sort of a soft guttural from the letter Aleph. And that means to miss the mark. It is used in several passages in... The scriptures, for example, in Judges 20.16, it's used to refer to a uh, someone using a slingshot, missing his target. It's also used in Proverbs 19.2 and Proverbs 8.36 to describe those who fall short of an expectation or fall short of a goal. So the term chata, which is the predominant word that's used in the Old Testament for sin, various forms of that verb, It means to miss the mark, to fall short of the standard, and to miss the target. So this is the main idea that we find in scriptures for the word sin. It means to miss the target, to fall short of a standard. Genesis 4-7, I want to go through the first four uses of hatah in the Old Testament. Genesis 4-7 we read, this has to do with, the temptation that uh, Cain is facing because God has approved Abel's sacrifice did not approve Cain's. The reason he didn't approve Cain's is because Cain was uh, disobedient to God and was bringing the fruit of his own work as opposed to a sacrifice as God had apparently instructed. So God tells Cain, while Cain is off grumbling and mumbling and nursing his wounds of rejection, God says, if you do well... Will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desires for you, but you must master it. So there's a personification of sin here. It is something that is a almost a tangible force in the life of the individual. It is puts pressure on the fallen creature. Second use in Chata is Genesis 13.13. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. So the term for sin is juxtaposed to the term for wicked. Genesis 18.20. The Lord said the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great and their sin is exceedingly grave. And then... In Genesis twenty God is speaking to uh, the Pharaoh who has uh been lied to by Adam, I mean by Abraham. God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me, therefore I do not let you let you touch her. So in these passages, we see that sin is conceived of as something that is powerful, but also, especially what we see in verse uh, 6 of chapter 20, is that sin is against God. And that's important to understand that no matter how many people may be affected by our sin, no matter how much uh, damage we do to human relationships, no matter who gets harmed in the process, sin is a violation of god's standard and god's righteousness and so sin ultimately is against god it is not against man primarily so we see that first of all that's the basic idea is to miss a target miss a mark and to fall short of an expectation Second thing that we see is that when it is related to God, it implies that there is an absolute standard or law that is violated. It implies the existence of an absolute standard or law that is violated. So to miss a mark, to miss a standard, indicates that there is a perfect standard. So that brings into the discussion God's absolute righteousness. Man falls short of of God's standard and the third thing that we see in a study of the passages where this word is used is that the Bible makes it clear that sin is against the Lord it is a personal affront to God's righteousness and some passages you can look at I've got several here across the spectrum of the Old Testament numbers 3223 Deuteronomy 141 Deuteronomy 916. Deuteronomy 20:18, Joshua 7:20, Psalm 51, 4, where David says after his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and his conspiring to have uh, Uriah murdered, and, and he was murdered, uh, David says against thee and thee only have I sinned. One would think that the sin would at least sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, but correctly speaking, sin is against God. That is why we confess sins to God and not to anyone else and not to some uh, human uh, representative is because sin is directed against God. Uh, Micah 7.9 and Zephaniah 1.17. In each of those passages, there's the clear statement that the sin is against the Lord. So all sin goes against the Lord, Numbers 32.23. Deuteronomy 141, 916, Deuteronomy 2018, Joshua 720, Psalm 514, Micah 79, and Zephaniah 1.17. Perhaps some of you ought to look up that last one, then you'll find out where Zephaniah is in your Bible. It's that, that those few pages in there that aren't worn. Second Hebrew word for that's used for sin is the verb pasha, pasha, and this means to transgress, to revolt. Its basic meaning is rebellion or revolution, and it means to rebel against a standard. So we've seen that the first word means to miss the mark or to fall short of the standard, but Peshe adds a new dimension, and that is that it is a revolution a revolt against that standard. It's not simply missing it, it's rebelling against it. And then the third key word that is used for sin in the Old Testament is avon, A-V-O-N. Avon, which is normally translated iniquity, and sometimes the consequence of iniquity, that is guilt. But the root meaning, the very core meaning of the word has to do with that which is bent, twisted, or distorted. So it has to do with bending, twisting, or distorting the standard of God. So chata means we miss the standard. Uh, pesha, transgression, means we rebel against the standard. And avon means avon means that we have twisted or distorted the standard. So the conclusion at this point is that sin is the foundational problem because. Of human sin, man misses the perfect standard of God, is in a revolt against that standard, and is twisting and distorting that standard. That is the natural orientation of the human heart, Jeremiah says, that the heart, and there it's really talking about the sin nature, the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? This is our natural inclination. That is why it's important to recognize that the Bible teaches that man, yes, you, man is inherently evil because of this sin nature. You're not basically good. Man is not basically good. And how you handle that and how you think about that changes the way you look at all of reality. Wonderful book by one of my favorite writers by the name of Thomas Sowell, who is a uh, a true intellectual, political columnist, thinker with the uh, Hoover Institute, and an economist and has quite a lot to say, wrote a book a number of years ago called Conflict of Visions. And if you don't ever read anything more than just the first couple of chapters, what he outlines there is the reason that you have certain people line up On the same side of the issue politically, whether they're talking about going to war against Iraq or whether they're talking about military buildup or how they view economics and taxes, how they view education, how they view prison, prison reform, the purpose for prison, no matter what the issue is, the same people always tend to line up on the same side of the issue. So when you say everybody who as for raising taxes to have higher Social Security government take care of everybody, get on this side, everybody who's against that, get on this other side, and then you ask the question, who's for capital punishment? Everybody who's for capital punishment, get on the right side. Everybody who's against it, get on the left side. They'll look around, and very few people will change sides between those two questions. No matter what question you ask in terms of of, of social policy, the same people tend to always be in the same group. Why is that? And what, what soul demonstrates historically is that it, it has to do with a completely different vision of who man is and what man is. And the core issue is that the guys who line up on one side, all think man is inherently evil and a sinner, and the folks who line up on the other side all think man is basically good. So if you think this kind of theology, talking about sin, is something that is just abstract theology, you haven't thought very deeply about this. This affects how you view politics. It affects how you view law. Uh, it affects how you view prisons. If you think the purpose of prison is to reform as opposed to punish, then you haven't come to grips with the inherently evil nature of man. The Bible, which gives us the most perfect law code ever in history, exemplifies a law code where where the purpose of of, retro, of the, the purpose of a guilty verdict is to impose punishment not rehabilitation, because that's built on a view of man that man is basically evil. So this is the problem, is that man is inherently evil, and left to his own devices, he will be self-centered and arrogant and destructive and end up becoming sociopathic and criminal and all kinds of horrible, evil things. And that is why it is necessary for parents to use the rod of correction in the right way, uh, use the rod of correction to drive evil and sin from a child because, as the proverb notes, evil is bound up in the heart of a child. That's why corporal discipline is necessary. That's part of the role of a parent. That is why you as a parent are supposed to teach your kids good manners and etiquette. is because good manners and etiquette have been developed in society over the years in order to allow selfish, arrogant, Self-absorbed, self-indulgent creatures to live together at a certain level of harmony, despite the fact that they all want what they want their own way. And so we teach good manners and etiquette in order as establishment principles in order to just teach kids to exercise some control, some self-discipline, over their own sin nature. And that's why self-discipline, and self-control is so important. I remember my dad teaching me that when I was a kid. He had his uh, K-bar knife that he brought back with him from Iwo Jima. I always thought that was pretty cool and wanted that. And back in those days in elementary school, they had a list of character qualities on one side of the report card, and I don't know what all was there. Plays well with others, self-disciplined, cooperative, well-mannered, whatever they were. I don't remember any of them except one was self-disciplined. And I had and they just graded those with a check plus or a minus, and I consistently got checks, and I had to get go three six week periods in a row with a plus in self-discipline before I could get that knife. And that took me about three years before that happened. But in fact, I think what finally made that possible was that I graduated from elementary school. And got into junior high where the grading system was just an E for excellent and you really had to mess up. I think in elementary school everybody started with a minus and you had to work your way up to get that plus. But in junior high everybody started with an E in conduct for excellent and you had to mess up to lose. So I had to get on a more grace-oriented system before um, I was able to get that knife. But. That is one thing that parents have to recognize, and that will change the way you as a parent parent is how you understand that sweet little beautiful baby that's born to you is whether or not you view that baby as as just so innocent and sweet or it's just some little evil sin nature wrapped up in, in the flesh. And it changes the way you look at life. It changes the way you see your role as a parent. It doesn't mean you love them any less, but you have a a realistic view of who they are and what the problems are and what you need to do in order to teach them to survive without letting that sin nature run amok because the consequences will be so so devastating. Well, those are the three key words in the Hebrew for sin. And when we get into the New Testament, the key word is hamartia. And that funny little mark there shouldn't be there, but I don't know why it came didn't show up correctly. That's supposed to be sort of a reverse apostrophe indicating a rough breathing mark, hamartia. And hamartia is the Greek word for sin. It's the primary word used for sin. It means to depart from divine standards of righteousness, and it means wrongdoing. It is used as a parallel with two other Greek words. One is anomia. And the other is a decay. Now that I'll write those up on the overhead. The first is anomia. A N O M I A. The N O M gets its root from Namas, meaning law. The prefix A is called the alpha privative. And that's like our prefix un, and it's a negative. And it means no law or someone who is against the law. Actually, it means lawlessness. Then the other word is adike, A-D-I-K-E, long E. This is from the root, the D-I-K is from the root, same root of dikaios, dikaiosune, the word for Righteousness. And so with the alpha privative, the a prefix, that means a lack of righteousness or unrighteousness. And we see these two words used in two verses in 1 John, one we've studied already and one we will approach in the next few weeks. And these two verses are 1 John 3, 4, everyone who practices sin, or literally it's everyone who does sin, also does lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. So once again, sin is viewed as a violation of God's standard, not law in the sense of the Mosaic law, but law in the sense of the absolute moral law of God. And then 1 John 5:17 states that all unrighteousness is sin. Once again, both words, both these verses indicate that sin is a violation of an objective, eternal, absolute standard that resides in the person of God. So because of sin, man falls short of God's standard. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the sin problem because man is a sinner by nature. He, When Adam sinned, he acquired a sin nature. That sin nature is passed on to all of his progeny. And he, as our federal head, he was our representative in the garden so that his sin is imputed to every creature. And the reason God can do that is in his omniscience, he knows that, now you may want to argue with him, but wait till eternity, that if you were there instead of Adam, you wouldn't have eaten the fruit. Well, it might have taken you six or seven minutes longer. Maybe it would have taken you not six or seven minutes sooner. But God in his omniscience knew that any creature with volition would commit that same sin. That's why God initiated a plan in eternity past to solve the problem of sin. So this is the first problem, the sin penalty. The second brick in the barrier has to do with the penalty of sin, and by this I mean the fact of a penalty. The fact of a penalty we 'll look at spiritual death eventually. that is the uh, reality of the penalty, but this is just uh, uh, the, or the application of the penalty. This is the uh, penalty of sin itself, the fact that there is a penalty in genesis two seventeen in genesis two seventeen God said told Adam, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for the day, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, this is a particularly significant construction in the Hebrew. The phrase translated, you shall surely die, is a compound of a cal perfect verb plus a cal infinitive absolute. And in the Hebrew language, that is a construction that doesn't mean, it's, it's a, though there's two verb forms there, it's Completely wrong to say dying, you will die. We've gone through that in studies before where we've traced out every use of that structure in Genesis and shown that, that it doesn't make sense anywhere else. You don't translate it with a double verb idea. You don't try to insert uh, a, a participle there. You, it was done for emphasis to indicate the certainty of an action and it should be translated you shall certainly die you shall instantly die so there was certainty to that that God was promising Adam that at the instant he ate from that fruit he would die but he did not die as we'll see, die physically as we'll see he died spiritually he did die but it was a spiritual death now there is a penalty and this is stated again in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin. And in Romans 5, the death here is spiritual death. This is not talking about physical death. There's a similar, similar passage in 1 Corinthians 15. But the subject in 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection of the body. Therefore, the death spoken of in 1 Corinthians 15 is not spiritual death, but physical death. So... Romans 5.12, death came through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. So there is a penalty, the penalty of spiritual death, and it is a debt that is owed. This is the point of Colossians 2.14, which states regarding the work of Christ on the cross, that he canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us. That's the penalty. So... We have a penalty that is assigned, and that penalty has to be paid. It is a judicial penalty because God's justice and righteousness were violated, and so that has to be uh, satisfied, which will take us to the next point, uh, point number three. But before we get there, I want to make sure you understand that there's a difference between the penalty for sin and the consequences for sin. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 2.17 we saw the penalty for sin was spiritual death. But in Genesis chapter 3, after God has confronted, uh, Adam and Esha, the woman, it wasn't until after the, the, come to the end of chapter 3, that she receives a new name by which we usually know her, and that is Eve. Up to that point, she was known as the woman Ishah, and he is known as the man, Adam. So don't get the idea that because uh, uh, sometimes I refer to her as the woman that that's somehow demeaning to women. That's the meaning of Isha. So the man and the woman, are Adam and Ishah, are in the garden, and God confronts them with their sin, and once that is discovered, he begins to outline to them the consequences of sin. Now what, are the, what the, you have to understand the difference between the penalty of sin and the consequences of sin. A lot of people don 't understand that just like a lot of people don 't understand the difference between uh, forgive how you can punish somebody and forgive them at the same time. God is going to outline the consequences of sin now the penalty the penalty the judicial penalty was spiritual death just like um, let 's take an example from recent history the all this business that's been going on with Enron and the collapse of of Enron. Now, whoever is responsible for that, the upper levels of management, are probably going to be penalized judicially for violating some law. I have friends in the business community who really don't think that will happen, but let's assume for the moment that that does happen. They will be assessed either a financial penalty – or they may spend some time in jail or prison. That is the legal penalty for violating certain laws. However, there are consequences to their actions. They've lost some things, but there are consequences in relationship to the people who work at Enron. They lost their life. Some of them lost their life savings that they had wrapped up in Enron stock. Others who had nothing to do with Enron and were school teachers in Florida and California and were putting their money into a teacher retirement fund, saw that teacher that retirement fund was heavily invested in Enron, and so they lost a lot in their retirement fund, and so they may not be able to retire on time because their teacher state or their state teachers retirement system uh took a big hit when Enron collapsed. There are consequences to sin but that's different from the penalty for sin. The legal penalty for sin was spiritual death. The consequences are outlined starting in verse 14 of Genesis chapter 3. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field, and on your belly you shall go. So a serpent crawls in the dust as a consequence of sin. So that is just one instance of numerous things that we could point to in the animal world where animals suffered consequences, nature suffered consequences due to, uh, the, uh, this sin of Adam. For example, they, their biology changed, their, their morphology changed, their, uh, they, you, when you have animals that go from being herbivores and gram, gramnivorous animals to, to carnivorous animals, all of a sudden what happens is that you have uh, animals that have to change their, their dental structure changes, their uh, uh, gastrointestinal system changes, all kinds of things changed. So there were physical changes that took place in the realm of nature that are consequences of Adam's sin. So sin isn't something that just hurt Adam or just hurt the human race, but it reverberates throughout all of creation, and change things throughout the universe. Then in verse 15, we see that there's going to be enmity between the serpent and the woman. This is the uh, uh, proto-evangelium, or the first hint of salvation, that there would be enmity between you, that is the serpent and the woman, between your seed and her seed, which is a reference eventually to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, He shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. In other words, the head wound is is a fatal wound. He, meaning the Messiah, would fatally wound you. And he's really speaking to Satan, who is the energizing power behind the serpent. And you shall bruise his heel, indicating that there would be a temporary or minor injury to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what happened at the cross, but he had victory over death. Now, the consequences to the woman are such that, first of all, it's going to create pain in childbirth, and she's going to have to go through menstruation on a monthly basis as a result of this sin, as a consequence. And then there's going to be a problem in marriage because the woman's going to have a desire to control her husband. The word there for desire is the same word that was used in the verse in Genesis 4.17 we just mentioned, and that is a desire to control or usurp or dominate. and the the man shall rule over you, he's going to have a tendency to a despotic rule, so there's going to be uh, a family feud going on as a result of sin, as a consequence. The ground is also cursed, so now it's going to be difficult to, to raise crops and vegetation, and there's going to be a war between man and his environment, and that's outlined in 17 and 18, and then it's finally, not until the last half of 19 that you have physical death mentioned. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. That's the last consequence of spiritual death mentioned. So there's a penalty of sin, and that is, uh, the the fact of that penalty has to be dealt with. And then the next step is the character of God. God is absolutely righteous. God is perfect righteousness, and God cannot have fellowship with creatures that do not meet his standards. So this problem is going to have to be resolved. For example, we have various verses. Psalm 33, 5 states that he loves righteousness and justice. Psalm thirty-seven twenty-eight, for the Lord loves justice. Romans 8, 8, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Psalm 79, oh let the evil of the wicked come to an end but establish the righteous for the righteous God tries the hearts and minds. Psalm 711 states God is a righteous judge. Psalm 98 he will judge the world in righteousness. Psalm 89:14 righteousness and justice are the foundation of thy throne. So in all of this we see this perfect character of God has to be satisfied. His righteous standard, he has to be satisfied. He can't just wave his hand and say, oh, well, you know, I understand that was just a minor little flaw. Once we understand what sin has done to man and to all of creation, it's not something that God can just sort of wave his hand and just casually dismiss. It has to be dealt with, and one problem is his own character. It has to be satisfied. The righteous judge has to be satisfied. Then there's the problem of spiritual death this is the fourth brick in the barrier we are spiritually dead man is missing something there's a component missing from his makeup now he no longer has a human spirit ephesians 2:1 says that that um, we were born dead in our trespasses and sins and then romans 5:12 and through 21 emphasizes this Romans five twelve states just as through one man sin entered into the world and death, that is spiritual death, the application of the penalty, death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans five fourteen nevertheless death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is the type of him who was to come. Romans 5.17, for if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. And then Romans 5.21, that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness, through eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So this problem of the fact that man has an inherent constitutional defect now has to be resolved. Not only is he a sinner by nature, but he is, he, he is missing something. He is missing this human spirit. And then the fifth brick is that of man's relative righteousness. Isaiah 64, 6 states that we are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousness are as filthy rags. Not all our unrighteousness is, but all of our righteousness is. That means that the very best that man does is considered filthy rags in God's sight. So we can't do anything. We can't even pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps in order to get the problem solved. And then finally, it's our position in Adam. We are identified with him as our federal head and 1 Corinthians 15:22 states that for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. That's the full dimension of the problem. See, this isn't something just simple, that you're lost and now you're found. It is a profound constitutional defect on the part of man, and yet God has an equally difficult problem to solve, and that is, The satisfaction of his own righteous standard and the satisfaction of his justice. And how is that all of, how are all of these elements going to be resolved in the plan of salvation? And all of them are accomplished at the cross. It is the cross that solves the problem and each and every element is dealt with by different aspects of Christ's work on the cross, which is referred to overall by the term atonement. And that atonement means that the sin problem is completely solved at the cross. It's called substitutionary atonement. So that the issue is that all sin, every problem, has been actually fully dealt with. So that the issue now is, do you accept it or reject it? Faith alone in Christ alone. The issue is not sin. It's not the penalty of sin. The issue is no longer the character of God or spiritual death. The issue is no longer our relative righteousness or position in Adam, the issue is what do you think about Jesus Christ? And we will come back next time to look at the elements of how God resolves this problem with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We pray that you would help us to understand these things and realize the tremendous uh, manifold grace that was provided such a fantastic salvation for us. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.